1: and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Federal IT. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The rapid transformation of how Americans interact with businesses and other services has radically raised their expectations of how they interact with government. Lengthy paperwork, cumbersome processes, and organizations centered around procedures and traditions are no longer acceptable in the eyes of the people. The importance of changing how government views and manages information and information technology cannot be understated. No longer can federal IT be seen as a merely back-office function and the management of government information relegated to a low-level priority. Federal agencies need to adapt to the modern digital world. And as a result, we see across the U.S. federal government, agencies undertaking IT modernization and digital transformation efforts in pursuit of a more efficient and impactful service delivery. Though these modernization efforts often deliver outstanding results, many times their benefits remain isolated within a small portion of the organization. Modernization should focus on the mission of the organization in service of its customers rather than growing innovation out of IT. It is important for government leaders to find the intersection between mission goals and business needs, always connecting technology back to the mission. To scale IT modernization efforts, it's important to have a well-defined vision. What are you trying to achieve and why? In this special edition, I'll explore IT modernization across the federal enterprise and offer perspectives from a handful of federal IT executives, touching on topics such as cybersecurity, customer experience, and challenges being faced and opportunities being seized in this area. Over the last couple of years, I've interviewed many Federal Chief Information Officers from a variety of agencies. It is from this rich library that I've culled together their insights on federal IT and their efforts to transform how their agencies do business. Some time ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Matarana. And during our conversation, she offered the following insights, highlighting key IT priority areas for the federal government.
2: Well, bolstering cybersecurity—you'll continue to hear me footstomp—is—is is mission critical, job one. Also, modernizing our IT—we have a lot of legacy systems in government, and we are on a journey to continue to modernize our entire enterprise IT. Um, improving customer experience—very critical—making sure that we're meeting the expectations of the American public, who, especially during COVID, have learned that digital interactions can be safe, seamless, and secure, and they want that from their government. And then I think the the fourth component is really securing and using our data as a strategic asset. That is absolutely critical because we provide the government with data about us in order to complete a task or engage in a service. And we oftentimes ask repetitive questions in silos. And I think that we all recognize that we can do better, both securing that data and making sure that we can deliver better digital programs by understanding the data we already have and helping someone make a more informed decision or take a path forward. The IT operating plan was really important for us to bring the technology teams together at the center of government, the United States Digital Service, our colleagues at GSA, um, and the Office of the Federal CIO together to talk about how we work independently, how we work with each other, how we support each other, and, and, and really importantly, how we drive impact from the center to best help agencies and technology teams across government deliver their success for their own missions.
1: Information technology is a critical part of how we operate the federal government and deliver services. Claire Matarana, the federal CIO, offered the following insights on efforts to scale modernized IT across federal agencies and enable the government to successfully adapt to the constantly evolving digital landscape.
2: One of the things I think that is very important to recognize is that through the communities of practice, CIO and CISO councils, we are working together every single day, sharing playbooks, innovative best practices. No one in the federal government, no matter how small the agency, should be starting with a blank piece of paper. That is how we are going to help scale and modernize IT across federal agencies. So we are building very significant partnerships, um, building on work that had been done previously and continuing to grow a partnerships uh, with our budget colleagues, making sure we're making the right investments at the right time, that we're also sharing and inspiring the federal workforce, right? Doing You know, demo days and communicating with key stakeholders, how modern human centered design delivers great products and services um, and provides great return on investment, which is a really important part of what we do. So I have a couple examples that I I really have been inspired by. You know, one is um, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, mobile app. Um, right? Most of the American public uses a mobile device uh, pretty frequently, if not daily. Um, And we're used to getting access to goods and services. So veterans now can use the VA app to locate facilities. They can view and cancel appointments. They can securely message their doctors, access the veterans crisis line. And they also get to use some of the um, native technology in the mobile device, right? So, you know, geolocating, so looking up something and then having to write down the address and then look up the address when you're in the car um, isn't quite as fluid as being able to look up the address on your mobile device and have it move immediately into geolocating in a map and getting you on your way to your appointment or or uh, service. So that uh, things that VA is doing, I think so far, they have a 4.7 or 8 ranking on the um, app stores. Um, and I think uh, close to a million veterans are using the app right now. And to me, that is a great story that can be shared with multiple other agencies that are also delivering benefits to the public. Um, on how they went about doing this, what contracting vehicles they used, how they budgeted for it. So again, trying to help agencies not start at a blank piece of paper, but really leverage some of the key learnings that we have had um, across the government.
1: As Claire Moderana underscores, IT modernization has been a key priority for some time within federal agencies. Ann Duncan, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy, offers insight into the IT modernization journey of her agency and the role cloud computing plays in it.
3: The cloud is really just somebody else's data center, right, Michael? We we all know that. Um, Sometimes we make the cloud out to be this big, amazing, incredible thing, and it's just just a data center. (laughs) So the advantage of the cloud uh, is that um, if you use the cloud wisely, it's a data center that somebody can run better than you can. The example I use is, is, um, or, or, or if you're buying a cloud app, a cloud service, it's one that you don't have to build and maintain yourself. So, for example, you know the Microsoft Office 365, right? DOE runs Office 365. um, As do many folks. We also run Google uh, in in a part of our enterprise. So, you know, the thing, one of the things you'll learn about DOE if you dig in is if if, if a product exists, we probably own it somewhere. Um, So, or an equal opportunity consumer. But when you look at email and collaboration in the cloud, number one, um, I don't have to worry about upgrading that service if I put it in the cloud. I, I don't have to say, oh, you've pushed out patches. Uh, you've deployed new, um, new tools. Do I want to implement them? They're all just going to show up. So that's, that's number one. Number two is Microsoft or Google as the, as two companies that we, we have email services with. And we probably have others too that, that I'm not aware of at the moment that uh they're they're expert at securing email they're expert at securing collaboration services um at a level of expertise that we don't have so when you when you select a product that someone has deep expertise in securing uh and, and you're more likely for them to be able to secure it successfully than for you to secure it yourself. Uh other end of the spectrum we have uh applications and services and capabilities that we own in DOE where we are a customer of one. Uh, there's nobody who's going to build that product for us and you know, there's there's no reason to go move that to the cloud when we understand it better in some cases in other cases we might say you don't know, want to be able to collaborate across doe moving to the cloud makes a ton of sense so we're going to do that there are also uh, things that you know we're moving to the cloud but in very secure environments and and those cloud environments are customized uh, for us and so that provides a great benefit to doe to have those uh, highly secure, cloud environments. Um, and then finally, I'd add that, um, on that on that sort of where do I, what do I think of the cloud uh, uses model? Um, you know, we have supercomputers. Um, there, We do some supercomputing in the cloud uh, as well. So we have on-premise and we have uh, in the cloud, but also you have to look at the data for some of those applications, supercomputing and research. How much data do you have? How much data you're going to be moving? Is it possible to move the kind of data flows that you need to, uh, keeping in mind that Many of our sites, even though we have great connectivity, are in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so you know, even if you've got great connectivity, you, there are still limitations um, uh, on how much data you're going to be moving to and from the cloud for some of those applications. So as CIO, you know, what we're doing is serving as a cloud services broker across DOE. For um, when you look at uh, platform and infrastructure as a service, we've provisioned Microsoft, Amazon, and Google uh, capabilities uh, for the enterprise uh as well as uh, uh capabilities in some other clouds as well but those are sort of the three big ones that we've that we've um uh deployed but we have for example we have Oracle products and other things that are in other for smaller cloud environments and our role is really to say here here are all these fully secured solution spaces so you can work in the Microsoft cloud you can work in the Amazon cloud you can work in the Google cloud you can work in the Oracle cloud whatever it might be um and they're fully secured uh they're ATO'd they're ready for you to go and use those uh, under our enterprise agreements in our enclaves. So that's, that's really what we're trying to do with the folks across DOE. And that can be anything from, Hey, um, you know, we'll fully run your application to we'll just give you some space to, to do your own thing in that and, um, work through your ATO process when you've got your application set up in that space. And the ATO will be simpler because you're inheriting all these controls from the ATO that already exists for the platform itself. So kind of a long answer to for, for the cloud there.
1: Ann Duncan, CIO at Energy, elaborates on the factors that are essential in scaling IT modernization and tells us more about the Scaling IT Modernization Playbook she helped develop.
3: Yeah, I want to start by first saying that the uh, playbook credit, because I don't want to forget to say this, credit for the playbook goes to a lot of people. Um, all I get is credit for the idea. Uh, we had uh, a tremendous team that built the playbook for us, and they interviewed smart people from across the federal government and the private sector. Um, I think the great thing about the playbook is that if I, if you'd asked me to write down my list of plays before we started, what we ended up with was not the same list that I would have started with, which just you know proves that none of us is as smart as all of us, and and that together we have really great ideas and great knowledge that we need to tap. So that said. Um, the idea of the playbook uh, goes back to the time that uh, early in the pandemic, when I was uh, uh, working for Dell, and apparently I couldn't sort of just uh, just stay home and and relax. Um, and so uh, I signed up for a day one project, uh, and I and I um, got my CTO from EPA, Greg Godbout, to do that with me, and we put together this proposal um, for several things, and one of which was the federal government should build a modernizing, a scaling IT modernization playbook because what we've seen is um, we've got uh, a lot of of places where we're doing modern development, where we're doing agile, where we're doing DevSecOps and they're little pockets. And how do we make those little pockets into um, a big uh, uh, landscape of of scaled innovation? And there are very few places where that exists. Um, The Air Force has done some great work with their software factories. Other people are starting to follow that. Um, there's not a lot of it. So we said, how, so we said, how do we do that? One of the things was the playbook came back to government and I was able to, to build that, that playbook. Uh, and so the idea behind that playbook is to give people all the, um, you know, the tools and capabilities that if they run these plays, they're going to help them move forward to being able to scale modern development practices, uh, across their enterprise, instead of keeping in these, in these small, um, uh, pockets of innovation across the organization so that was that was the purpose and you know it's been hugely uh successful in terms of people looking at it i I mentioned earlier i was at a fed scoop event i think i had three different people come up to me and say they'd seen the playbook they liked the playbook they wanted to talk about the playbook And that was you're just in one evening so it's out there it's um actually at energy.gov forward slash cio it's available to anybody to take it use it share it uh we're not proprietary about it private sector, public sector, anyone can use it. And we hope that it is helpful to people um, in their modernization journey.
1: Guy Carvalho, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personal Management, OPM, concurs with Duncan and shares his IT modernization strategy, acknowledging what needs to be in place and what approach will get you there.
4: Uh, Definitely moving to the cloud is my top priority. I mean, outside of what we've already talked about on hiring the right staff and making sure that we have training and all that, assuming that's all in place, uh, I believe the cloud is the best way for the federal government to provide the best services to our citizens, making sure that we're investing in our employees with that continuing training, realize that we can't just hire somebody and let it stagnate, that we want to give them a future with it. And it's really... One of the things I'm most excited here that I didn't get to do before is that the tools have progressed since the last time I took an agency to a cloud, which was five years ago. Uh, Maria wrote, and I did that at the SBA. We were trusted by the senior leadership to do it because we said this is the way, but we didn't really have to show them a lot. Uh, Nowadays, and I didn't have the data to show it. We both knew that it was going to provide better service at either the same cost or approximately the same cost, but things that we couldn't do. Uh, Now today, we're actually in the middle of running tools to calculate the cost of moving every single system to the cloud. I didn't have that hard data before. I'm going to have it now. Um, and We've already worked out our plan on how we're going to migrate and what we're going to move. We've used what uh, the Federal CIO Council came out with an application rationalization process. We've used that where basically you take each system and you put it in a grid of four things. One is nobody's using the system, so we're gonna turn it off. And there's always those, and and you don't wanna migrate those. There's ones that this is so complex or convoluted that we have to totally rewrite it, so it needs to stay on premise for now. And then there's ones where, this can move to the cloud quickly uh, as infrastructure as a service. or And then the fourth one is we could switch it to uh, platform as a service. Mm -hmm. So, we've already done that analysis. And what my team did, which was really great, is they put a level of effort estimate on it. So, not only do I have that heat map, but for each system, I have how hard it is to do. So, the ones that are very easy to move and have the biggest impact in the upper right quadrant. Those are the things we're going to tackle first. But now, probably by the end of January, I'll have the financial data and be able to go back and show the leadership team. Here's why we're moving this application to the cloud. Here's how much it will cost in the cloud. Because even today, and I mentioned earlier, 18 years, come on, the cloud's not new. (laughs) The costing of the cloud and consumption model is still something people are struggling with and the fear of you know somebody's going to hit a switch and we're going to have a million dollar bill overnight. That that uh, that story is still out there. So being able to show here's what it's actually going to cost, and then the cap model of I'm not going to need to go buy a new data center every five years, where I'm going to come and say I need thirty million dollars above and beyond my budget just to buy and keep everything like we have it. Um, I find CFOs love that if a if a CIO works closely with their CFO and says, look, instead of me coming to you and saying, I need to rebuy the data center every five years, and it's this massive increase, can I give you a steady line cost instead? And every CFO will say, give me that steady line cost Mm -hmm. instead of that massive increase. So those are all parts uh, of doing it. I didn't mention it earlier. The CIO, to be successful, absolutely must work hand in hand with the financial team uh, because this is a change for them too. And being able to explain these things to them is really a big help. In fact, one of the first applications I moved to the cloud was a CFO application. Congress has decided to give us a priority of building a new health benefits program for the US postal workers with a very short time frame. So that is a very big priority for (laughs) us. Uh, We are working across organization to do that. And the rules are different Mm -hmm. for that. So the current federal employee health benefits system has a different set of rules than what was mandated for the postal service. So we really have to build a whole new oh, wow. system. The eligibility is different. The way it'll pay the the the, um, the health programs that will be available to the postal workers are all going to be different. So might, they might have thought it was just a quick modification of what we had, but it's really a, uh, a whole different system. So that that's a huge priority. And then obviously with every administration uh, – The priorities of the Biden administration on helping DEIA—we've built uh, the first dashboards for the federal government for DEIA. Uh, Strong push for bringing in early career talent, uh, which is their way of talking about interns and Mm -hmm. and and uh, people early in their career. We're we're doing all of those initiatives too to support support that effort. But you know, stabilizing the infrastructure that I inherited, which was not stable, Mm -hmm. and then. Moving us to the cloud and also supporting all these initiatives. Uh, something that that we did is we turned on enterprise dashboarding for everybody. So that my experience in the past is you had have the haves and the have-nots. Some people could afford the BI tools and some didn't. Uh, I made it uniform so that everybody at OPM can create dashboards and it's growing like wildfire because we have a great amount of data. Uh, being, you know, the HR agency, the federal government, and we weren't able to display that in easy-to-use formats. Now we're headed that way, and I think both the what's going to be available for citizens to see uh, on the OPM website and also internally in the federal government for various agencies, we're going to make their data much easier for them to decide um, how long does it take a agency to hire a certain class of person, being able to compare that to, wait a minute, here's two agencies that do it in half the time. Uh, If they're smart, they'll call out those two agencies and say, hey, this is taking us this long. How are you able to cut it in half? So not only the data, but being able to, to use the results of the data to change business practices is huge.
1: Guy Carvalho, CIO at OPM, tells us more about how the migration of applications to cloud platforms reduce operational expenses and increase resiliency.
4: Yeah, one thing is uh, I'm, I'm not basing moving to the cloud just on cost. Okay. There are so many benefits that we get with the cloud that we aren't able to do now. Uh, one I just highlighted with our executives in the last week is when we store something to the cloud, it's automatically stored in multiple places so that if a server goes down in the cloud vendor's side, we don't even know it because they already have two other copies of it, usually one in that same data center, mm-hmm. but in a total different Uh, server array, and then a third copy in a totally different data center in case that whole data center goes offline. We don't even see that, that that that's happening. For me to do that physically with my own data centers, the price would be outrageous. Uh, Disaster recovery and business continuity. Again, it's something, it's like an insurance policy. Everybody hates paying for it. And until you need it, then you realize that with the cloud, we have that built in automatically, where on on-premise, I would have to spend tens of millions of dollars to have equipment sitting idle for something that may or may not happen. So, just that uptime, that resiliency is critical. Uh, OPM, like a lot of federal agencies, has seasonal traffic, too. You know, we, we provide one of our systems we provide to the federal federal government. is called USA Performance, so it's where... Uh, A large number of federal agencies now are using our system to rate uh, the annual performance reviews of their employees. Well, those are all due in September, and then the next year one is due in October. It's a classic case of elasticity. We have a massive surge of traffic in those two months, and then it drops down tremendously. Today, on-premise data center, I have to buy enough equipment to hit that surge and then have it sit idle the rest of the year. With the cloud, we can have our cost increase and, and resources increase. And then when the traffic drops, the price will drop considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of the benefits. Uh, I think the cybersecurity protections, when you're in a major cloud, you're also bringing in the cybersecurity forces of that cloud vendor, which uh, is a great army to add to the federal workforce. So, uh, you know, if something is going wrong, that's something if you're just doing it yourself on premise, you don't have that Calvary to call, or, or that, that's already working on it because it's impacting their entire business. Yeah. So there's, you know, those are a number of reasons. Cost, I'm willing to pay more, getting those extra benefits. Mm-hmm. If it comes close, that's good. But uh, again, part of the story, I'm not looking to save money with it. Ideally, you know, especially with that um, elasticity expansion model, mm-hmm. uh, I think over course of a year we can save money. But that's not the driver. Mm-hmm.
1: Focusing on cybersecurity and customer experience when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speaks, returns.
5: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report, Financial Management for the Future, at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy Responding to Global Health Crisis at businessofgovernment.org.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak Insights on Federal IT. IT modernization rests on the foundation of secure infrastructure and systems. Integral to any successful modernization effort is embedding cybersecurity into every aspect of that journey. Each year, the volume of cyber attacks and their impact reaches new levels. The number of cyber attacks targeting governments increased 95% worldwide during the first half of 2022. New thinking and new approaches to cyber governance are required. Governments must act to bolster security capabilities for agencies, as well as protect critical infrastructure across the nation. Claire Matarana, Federal Chief Information Officer, identifies some cybersecurity challenges facing U.S. federal agencies and offers some ways agencies are working to address these challenges to mitigate the risk and impact of threats to data, systems, and networks.
2: This is the number one team sport <laughs> that we are participating in, um, along with the Office of the National Cyber Director, CISA, uh, you know, NSC, NSA, right? There is a, a multitude of acronyms with all of our efforts focused on cybersecurity. So at, at the highest level, we're really architected a new model for cybersecurity across the federal government you know, we're in a unique threat environment. Our adversaries are pointing an enormous amount of resources at us, at particular federal agencies, and frankly, the whole federal enterprise. So it is really critically important that we work like a team to make sure that cyber defense is our singular goal. And we're also working to make sure um, at individual agencies that we're keeping, um, you know, Americans' information confidential, that we're preserving data integrity, that we're um, remaining accessible and resilient to these nation state attacks. But in a lot of ways, it really does require us to work and think differently, to deploy new technology. And very importantly, to adopt new mindsets. We cannot keep operating the way that we were previously operating and expect that we're going to have any different outcomes. So, you know, we published the zero trust strategy. Um, We made sure that prior to publishing it, that we took a period for public comment um, to make it better, right? We cannot do the work that we all do without our private sector partners, without academics and researchers that are spending every day focused on these areas. So we believe that the Zero Trust strategy was really showed how the federal government was leaning forward and leading in this area. Um, and we are also working very hard to make sure that we are, cascading this message to all levels of the workforce. This requires senior leadership that is assuming you know, responsibility for the cybersecurity posture of their agencies, as well as building staff capabilities and technology solutions and architecture and budget and investment to meet today and tomorrow's challenges. Um, and most importantly, delivering impact. So I'd say that, again, Team Sport, we're all working together collaboratively, but it is going to take the workforce really embracing this wholesale change in um, never trust, always verify um, as the new method at which we have to think about securing our missions.
1: Bob Costello, Chief Information Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, tells us more about his cybersecurity strategy. For the agency and how zero trust factors in,
6: it's ensuring that we are implementing all of the guidelines of the cybersecurity executive order. Yeah, uh, you know, vitally important that that we're doing all of that. Uh, a lot of my focus is ensuring that you know my teams are continuing to mature as we build out these new systems that we are you know deploying um, you know effective uh, endpoint detection uh, and remediation tools. That we're we're pen testing quite often, uh, that we're logging uh, everything that we should be, and that we're reviewing logs. You, you know, that's a very important thing. Uh, that we're turn, tuning our cybersecurity uh, tools to provide you know the best value, uh, you know, across the board. So those are things that I'm concentrating internally here at CISA. You really can't do zero trust if you can't ident- you know, do identity really well. I think that we have. Um, you know, across the government or in the private sector, you know, you, you're sometimes dealing with very legacy systems and how you implement them into a zero trust model. I think, like anything, it's a journey. It won't, uh, you know, it, it's a journey that doesn't end. You're like you get better and better. Uh, I think it's really important, uh, as uh, Director Eastley has spoken about, as we're rolling out new systems or designing new software, it should be, you know, secure by design. So I think it's really important. That you have really integrated teams. So my security teams are are really integrated with our product teams or you know engineering teams. Uh, and we also have an ex- enormously strong par- partnership uh, with CISA. Uh you, you know, we work hand in hand with the cybersecurity director and, and consume those services that that can help us uh, you know get better.
1: Guy Cavallo, CIO at the Office of Management and Budget, tells us about his cybersecurity efforts, especially his pursuit of Zero Trust.
4: Yes. Luckily, uh, uh, this is my second agency for Zero Trust uh, uh, because I'd already started it at SBA. Oh, okay. um, we, we, Because of that effort, we went early to the Technology Modernization Fund mm-hmm. and put in a request to, uh, you know, because of the federal budget cycle, it would have been two years before I could have asked for uh, Zero Trust money, so I went to TMF instead. And uh, we were one of the few agencies that got early approval on that. I think there were three of us that got approval. We are well underway to implementing that now. Um, something that my, my CISO has done, which uh, I didn't have to encourage him, but he worked with Maria Rote and me at SBA, so he knows how we work. Uh, he's sharing everything with the federal community on here's where we are on our journey for any agencies that are behind us or haven't started yet. Uh, we will definitely share best practices lessons learned what were the roadblocks uh, what we would do differently um, it you know zero trust I think absolutely with today's cyber attacks is the way we have to go to protect our, our data the the old build a moat around your network and you'll block everybody there but once they're inside they can go anywhere Uh the hackers have proven that that is their favorite model, that they can get in and go anywhere. So uh, I'm excited about that. Like I said, we're we're well on our way on the journey. It is going to take uh, a couple years to do it fully, and we're able to do it in stages so that we can do that. One, one thing, going back to user experience, what we did at SBA is we replaced the VPN with the Zero Trust connection, and that meant that the end user went from having to click on about eight things to get started every day. We went down to two things, put in your PIV card, type your PIN, and you're done. Um, So the users love that, because sometimes with the VPN client, they couldn't tell, did it connect or did it not connect? Uh, uh, From a cyber perspective, the CISO and I love it because with a VPN, you had the option of a user could turn it off and still use their laptop with Zero Trust, we don't allow them to turn it on. If they're going to log on to their laptop, it's always going to be connected through Zero Trust. So we're able to do patching. We're able to collect performance data, all the things where if they're not logging in with the VPN, we, were, we weren't able to do. So that's the easy part of Zero Trust, taking Joe and Sally and, and then deciding Joe's going to get this access to these three systems at this level and nothing else, and Sally can have access to these five systems at this level, that's a lot of legwork and that's gonna take us longer, but I'm excited about that. Jamie Holcomb, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark
1: Office, USPTO, offers his insights on cybersecurity, its importance, especially in pursuing zero trust.
7: Number one, cybersecurity. It does start with the basics. It's just like when you walk out of your home do you lock your doors? Do you make sure the home is secure? We have to start with the basics before you can get into all the high-speed cyber. Have multi-factor authentication in order to get into your systems. Don't allow passwords to be shared. Don't give people access. So you start on the inside, and of course you have to be protected from the outside. And so we're moving to the monetization, bringing into to the internet age, when we do our modernization, we have the ability to actually design in security at the beginning. And there's a lot of work being done right now on zero trust. Zero trust, and just like security, it's not a tool. It's not a thing. It is a philosophy. It is a way of thinking. The old client-server way and defense in depth is not a bad way. And in fact, is a very good way to do work. There are a couple of weaknesses of defending in depth. We need to have a design theory of zero trust where we don't allow these people where they don't need to be. The zero trust environment is a design thinking. And that's the number one cybersecurity thing we're trying to get into is a different way to think. We're worried about simple neglect of leaving your doors open on your car with your keys right on the dash that's what we're trying to prevent with insider threat. People might not even know that they're insecure or that they have things open. We have to educate our internal employees. Yes, we have to trust them, but we also have to look at their patterns and what they're how they're behaving. Should we look at that behavioral analysis and say, wait a second, let's challenge that session to make sure that that's him. Those are the types of design scenarios we really need to think about in the future of modernizing our IT infrastructure
1: for security. From securing infrastructure and systems to enhancing mission delivery, in the end, the focus is on delivering the best services to the customer. The administration has put customer experience front and center. Guy Cavallo, CIO at OPM, offers insights into how his agency is enhancing customer experiences.
4: Yeah, I actually gave a talk on this, and I really highlighted that there's two areas that we look at this. One one is what you just highlighted and I'll get to that second. The second one is the user experience that we provide every day to our employees and our staff. And one thing that we saw the federal government do with COVID is we went from limited telework to Mm -hmm. massive telework, but we also treated it initially and maybe even for a year or two as if this is a snowstorm, you go back to your office after a few days. So that meant we were asking our federal employees That might be doing a legal review of a 400 page document. While you were in your office, you'd have two large monitors and you'd be able to see this. Go ahead and do it at home on your small laptop screen and track comments and track where you are because you're going to go back to the office tomorrow. Well, tomorrow didn't come for years. So, one of the initiatives we did last year is we are equipped every federal employee with the same office equipment at home that they have in the office if they're a hybrid or a remote worker so that they have all the same tools and the same capabilities. That, to me, that's, again, a customer experience change. Normally, we talk about websites and design. Uh, The other thing that we did is when I got to OPM, we had five different productivity tools in place with none of them being used across the enterprise. So, you could IM or chat between Two people in one office, but not even that whole office could be on that same platform or definitely across the agency. So one thing I saw with this hybrid world of work, we all needed to get on an enterprise platform so that we could communicate. And so, again, that was, going back to our earlier question, that was a culture change yeah. because certain people loved some of those five products and didn't want to change. <laughs> um, but I laid out the business reasons and the cost reasons for doing that. and. Now, the whole agency is on one platform, Uh, in fact, where we have led a pilot with the rest of the federal government, we're able to interface from productivity user to productivity user in 28 other agencies. And being the federal HR agency, that means I can have an HR specialist, in OPM, start an online chat with somebody in NASA in the HR department, and then if they decide that this is too complex to chat, immediately hit a button and go into a video call. So, again, to me, that's part of the user experience that we ignore when we only talk about user stories and and changing the way a web application looks. On that side, uh, one of the things I did is I created a digital services team within OPM. Uh, I've worked with the federal digital services team and my other agencies and, again, while helpful, they're, they work for somebody else and they're there a short time and then they leave I what I saw in my model is I want to have them under the CIOs office and to be here permanently uh, and that goes back to part of what I talked about earlier by having those federal employees that have new uh, current uh, customer experience skills and cloud skills again I partner them with the legacy team as part of our modernization effort uh, we're a big we're a big user of uh, of Dev DevOps and user stories, in fact, the, the postal system that I mentioned to you, we have the entire agency mapping out user stories in a common tool so that we can see the impact on the CFO, the impact on our retirement systems, uh, the impact on our health insurance team, the impact on the CIO, and our, our director's office loves it because they can open up that dashboard and see this office, this is 100% done on their user stories, but this office is only 10% done. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a very visual feedback. And we've had to do a lot of training because uh, in this case we're taking business users, not part of the IT team, Mm -hmm. and saying here's how you map out what you do in your current job. Mm -hmm. And that's been very, very successful and I have a much better idea as we build this new postal service system what needs to be in the requirements versus the old-fashioned way of trying to go knock on people's doors. And so, what do you do in your job today and jot it all down uh, to try to map out that that's a system requirement? So, very important. We've laid out a whole journey map of somebody wants to become a federal employee to they go through the submittal of a job on USA Jobs, they go through federal interviews, they get hired by agency A. Later on in their career, they change to agency B, they get married, they change their health benefits, and eventually they retire. We've mapped out that whole journey map, and that's part of what's driving our, um, unfortunately right now, each of those instances is treated as its own silo. Oh, okay. Our Part of our user experience is we want to make that one common journey that you should always be able to see where you are and the process to to deal with that.
1: We'll explore how the U.S. Department of Defense is pursuing digital transformation and IT modernization when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
5: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, Insights on Federal IT. In our previous segments, I shared insights of CIOs from a variety of federal civilian agencies. In this segment, I'd like to shift our focus to what is happening in the defense space. The Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, is a U.S. Department of Defense combat support agency. DISA provides, operates, and assures command and control information sharing capabilities, and a globally accessible enterprise information infrastructure to the warfighter. Sharon Woods, director of DIS's hosting and compute center, the hack offers her insights into how they are working with their end users and customers to ensure that solutions and services improve mission readiness for the warfighter.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the important factors in, in leveraging continuous user feedback is using automation to do that because you know our our customer is the entire department of defense. And so, you know, collecting that data only manually and trying to triage that manually um, is completely unrealistic, especially to operate at speed. So we have been using sale, Salesforce to collect all of those different. Uh, customer interactions, and some of the key themes and what the technology lets you do from a a customer relationship management standpoint, it can apply analytics across all those different engagements. And so common themes, common problem sets start to emerge because we have to be able to synthesize, you know, what is relevant, to a vast majority of the department because we are a enterprise provider and and really need to hit as much of the customer population as possible.
1: Woods notes it's critically important for DOD to pursue a hybrid cloud approach, relying on a combination of mainframe and commercial cloud options. Woods elaborates on the need for optionality.
0: I'll use an example where uh, it can be a little surprising to folks. Uh, Because one of the things that we're responsible for is also mainframe technology. And people hear that and think, oh, well, that's some legacy capability where there's this gigantic mainframe in a room and punch cards. And so, you know, clearly we need to get out of that business. Um, But it is actually an important option for some of our customers. If you look at the banking industry, uh, mainframe is especially well suited uh, to host enormous amounts of data and to process an enormous amount of transactions. And so that makes sense within banking and all the financial transactions that they need to process. Uh, the Department of Defense has a very large workforce and there are quite a few transactions that happen um, around pay uh, and personnel, for instance. And so there is a place for mainframe technology you know, within that uh, use case. And so with hybrid, You know, if we weren't looking at how do we integrate all the different hosting and compute platforms across that entire spectrum, we'd be missing the boat on really meeting the requirements of some of our customers. And so that's why hybrid is so important. You can't become the provider of choice. You can't provide best value solutions if you're only providing some of them. When fundamentally the technology is a spectrum of capabilities It isn't just one or the other.
1: Lily Zalecki, Deputy Chief Information Officer, Information Enterprise at the US Department of Defense, joined me some months ago to share her insights on DoD's modernization journey. She acknowledges DoD's adaptability relies on its ability to deliver resilient software capability securely and rapidly to the warfighter. She tells us more about DoD's software modernization strategy.
8: So, the DoD software modernization strategy laid out Three goals. Um, The first goal is accelerate the DoD enterprise cloud environment. What that means is really the ability to um, have the ready access to um, the uh, industry capability and the service capabilities that that cloud offers. So one of the things that we're doing, and you've heard about the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability (JWCC). Uh, in the works uh it's it's um a multi-cloud multi-vendor um uh direct acquisition ability to have direct acquisition from the cloud service providers uh the services and capabilities that we need in the you know from in the cloud um that is really the kind of things that this accelerate um uh, the DoD enterprise cloud environment brings to us, and this this is cr- so critical because we need to have this cloud, uh, our ability to you know traverse in the cloud from uh, not just Conus to Oconus outside of the continental United States, which I think you may have heard referred to as the tactical edge. Um, we need to have that seamless um, uh, global uh, connectivity. And that's really what it's, this is going to drive. And one of the things I want to emphasize here is when we talk information enterprise and collaboration capabilities and the kind of things we talk about, these are services and contracts and people. So a lot of the work that goes on requires really um, flexible ways to acquire these services and capabilities. The things that gets us out of the business of doing cloud and and to the business of doing the mission, for example. So that really helps us in that regard. And the other, the second goal is to establish a department-wise software factory ecosystem. And what that is, is really being able to institute Uh, modern software practices like DevSecOps and what that stands for is really sort of combining and integrating the development, the cybersecurity, the security piece and the ops, um, the folks that are working on those and the systems and integrating them. So we have quicker decision, quicker delivery, uh, quicker identification of problems and being able to institute the security right through and bake it across, you know, end to end, and development to operation, and that enables us to deliver the so- develop and deliver the software, and just continue to update the software and more. Um, we're not at real time yet, but but near real time. Uh, so that is the software factories um, ecosystem, and uh, being able to advance that. Um, and really, how many software factories does it take? Well, it takes as many as it takes for us to be able to do our mission is really where we're at with that. Um, and then the goal three is transform processes uh, to enable resilient and resilience and speed. So I think I touched on that. But really, this is what we're talking about when we talk. The DoD processes of current, you know, the current processes have to evolve the way we acquire systems. That's why we work hand in hand with the acquisition community to make sure that the way we acquire software uh, changes because our current acquisition processes have a lot of steps that we have to go through. And, you know, for ships and planes, it works for software, not so much. So we have to um, evolve the way we acquire software. Um, In addition, you know, how we develop again, R and D processes, you know, what worked for ships and jets, like I said, is not working for software. So that's why we need like the software factories and the DevSecOps practices, uh, the, you know, software containers, so we can reuse uh, and not have to reinvent every time uh, the ability to, you know, to uh, utilize what we've delivered and done already and not uh, not continue to uh, tie up in processes. Um, the same with, uh, you know, um, cybersecurity. So we want to, for example, uh, the continuous authorization to operate is one of the things that we're, you know, a very heavy working uh, which will enable, you know, the ability to have that authorization. If we're talking DevSecOps, that authorization on a continuous basis, because you're continuously checking and rechecking through automation and through continuous monitoring to be able to do those things. So these are the things, and of course, the workforce, the um, process I talked about, um, it, you know, falls into the transformation of processes to be to be able to um, uh, do the things that we've outlined in goal one and two. And this is going to be sort of an, inc- we're going to walk this incrementally when we come out with the implementation plan. It's going to be, you know, uh, probably for every couple of years, we're going to update it It's going to have to be agile and agile just means that you're, you know, you're able to pivot if necessary without breaking mission and without losing too much time. So that's the way we're also even looking at the implementation plan. So that's um, that's in a nutshell uh, what our software uh, modernization strategy uh, lays out.
1: Zalecki acknowledges that moving to the cloud is integral to the department's modernization efforts but it's not about just simply moving to the cloud for its own sake.
8: So when we talk hybrid, you know, it it's, it sounds sort of nebulous, but it's really that connecting tissue that I talked about because you have legacy capabilities here that, you know, as we continue to rationalize and to assess and to, you know, continuously move applications into the cloud, we find that some of them may not be able to move. So you're going to have to you know, do an on-premise or a data center uh, and, and, you know, maybe upgrade that capability to make sure that these systems can be as efficient and as modified as possible, but they may not be able to move to a commercial cloud. So that gap and that need for both, you know, the on-prem and maybe even the data centers and then the commercial cloud, that is the hybrid uh, world that we live in right now. So that is really the world that we uh me and my seat here must balance, as you say, and and must implement um as we integrate the future um you know with our existing and with our past in all the systems that we have today. And and as we uh interconnect them, as we make uh delivery of services at a, at a maybe enterprise level. Not everything can be enterprised by the way. Uh, you know, I, as an information enterprise leader, you know, some may want me to say like, everything must be, you know, no, we, sometimes, you know, we got to federate, we got to let folks do what they do best. So we give them a common, uh, you know, layer of architecture, a common layer of, uh, requirements, a Technical requirements, operational requirements, business requirements, and then allow them to connect to that to that layer. So these are these are the things that makes uh, the need for where we are today in our world. Um, you know, for the hybrid approach and the multi-cloud, as I explained earlier, it, it means that you know the ability to have the various cloud uh, service offerings. Uh, from the different CSPs um, and you um, know uh, our 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 services and and the department across the board has variations of um, cloud offerings. And JWCC brings um, additional complementary offerings, including uh, the ability to do across all classification levels on class, secret, and top secret and and also being to get out all the way to the tactical edge which is really really a challenging one for us especially for boots on the ground where they're disconnected and remote areas the ability to do that and that's actually an area of challenge we're still tackling but that is uh the other piece that that we look at so when you look at these variations and and uh requirements and and just the vastness of the mission requirement itself that it is not a one swoop, like everyone pick up and go to the, it doesn't work that way. And really the software modernization implementation plan and the things I laid out earlier, recognize that. And this is really a walk. Uh, We're going to have to walk. And some of the things we may figure out that we have to pivot in different ways. uh, But that is really um, what we're embarking on and, and, Uh, we're gonna do.
1: Thanks for joining me for the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Federal IT. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
5: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yanyan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.